everybody. So we're continuing through the Gospel of John. And tonight we get to chapter 4. We're also continuing this first-person narrative style of preaching, which we will maintain through the first half of, of John's Gospel. In the last three times we've done this, we've, we've done it through the perspective of John himself. But I'm breaking with that little tradition tonight. Tonight I'm going to tell you the story through the eyes of an unknown, unnamed Samaritan woman. So you'll have to use your imagination. <laughs> A lot. Thanks, Rob. So, hi. My name is... No, you don't need to know my name. In fact, it's probably better that you don't know my name. Because I want you to be so fixed on the one who is the central person in the story I want to tell you. His name is Jesus. Best you not know my name. Best you know his name. I lived at that time when I first met Jesus. I lived in a little town in the area of the Samaritans named Sucha. Actually, if you want to call me anything, call me Sucha. Because the name of that town, Sucha, means strong, intoxicating drink. And that was my problem. I really had a problem with booze. I drank too much. I was a drunkard. And today you would call it alcoholism. You would say, oh, she's an alcoholic. And you'd send me to an AA meeting or something. But in those days we had no name for it. They just called me the drunken slut. That's how I was known. I first came to Sukha as a young woman. I'd married a man who had come from that little village. And his parents had died and he had said, come, let's, let's go and set up home there in the little house my parents had left me. And so we went there. I was a very modest, introverted sort of a person. He was a skilled craftsman. And his talents were always in demand. So we ate quite well and I set up a little farmyard thingy with some goats and I had a vegetable patch and and he was away at work, and I was tending the house and tending the gardens, and it was working tremendously well. And I was happy. I made some friends. But then one winter, he started to get sick. He started to cough a lot. And the coughing went on, and it got worse and worse and worse. And then he started to saying, you know, I've got this incredible pain in my lungs. In your world, you'd call it pneumonia, but in my world, we had no names for that. And then he broke into this terrible fever, and during the night, he died. My world was shattered. I didn't know how I was going to cope. You know, we were a team. It was just the two of us. And I was such a shy, reserved person anyway. What would happen? Oh, I had a little bit of money that he, he had saved for us, but I had no sense of security. I was devastated. And then I made a really, really stupid decision. I said to myself, well, maybe if I just started drinking, if I just started drinking wine and other strong intoxicating drinks, maybe it would numb me. Maybe it would enable me to cope with the situation around me. Maybe I would even sleep at night and not just lie there worrying and mourning as I have been. It was stupid, I know. Because the minute I started to do that, it, it didn't numb me. It grabbed me by the throat. Before I knew where I was, I was addicted to it. I 
couldn't do without it. And it changed me. It changed my whole personality. From being this introverted, modest young woman, I became a party gal of note. I just wanted to party. Now, I was pretty comely in those days. I know it's hard to believe now. <laughs> and, and so the men, you know, they took a lot of interest in me. This party girl who, you know, who was really flying around and, and so full of fun and sharp-mouthed. Uh, they loved me, but the uh, ladies, particularly their wives, not so much. Not so much. And they had reason to. Because I became an outrageous flirt. I really did. A lot of those men wanted to take me to bed, but I wouldn't let them. I was brought up well, and I wouldn't let them. I made it quite clear, if you want me in your bed, you marry me. Well, the husband of one of my previous friends thought that that was a good idea. And he just divorced his wife. You know, divorce in those days was so simple. You just wrote out on a piece of paper the fact that you were no longer happy with your, with your wife. Only men could do this. Wives, no, you just got divorced. And then he took it along to the city elders and they just approved it and that was it. And two days later, he's all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed at my door. Hello, babe. Let's party. And I had a skin full of wine most of the time. I wasn't thinking straight. And I thought, okay, maybe this is a fresh start. Maybe I can just make everything right again and start at home again. So I took my little flock of goats and I locked up my house and we got married and I moved into his place. Well, it didn't take him long to realize that he wasn't going to have a party at all because I was nasty. He soon realized that I was a liar. I stole things, even from him. I was unpleasant. I was abusive in my language and I just flirted with every other man. I woke up one morning Late, very late, and lying next to my sleeping mat was a writ of divorce. He had divorced me too. His old wife moved back in, actually, just weeks later. So I packed up and I went back and unlocked my place and took my little herd of goats with me. And I thought, okay, I can start again. This devastating cycle of, of... engaging with other men and then marrying them and then getting divorced happened another three times. I wound up widowed once and divorced four times. There was an old man in the village and he was very frail, very, very frail and very old and he was not coping. He he couldn't cook his own food. He had no family, had no children still alive. And he said to me, come, move into my place. If you look after me, then I'll put food on the table for you. And I did that. And he was very accommodating and tolerant of my behavior. One of my duties was to go and fetch water every day. Now, the women of the village would go in the early morning normally or late afternoon when it was cool. Makes sense. Because it's quite a heavy job carrying a big jug of water on your shoulders. I tried to join them just once in the early hours of the morning, just once. Because as we walked out of town towards the well, and there were no men in view, they turned on me and they 
beat me mercilessly. They left me lying bloody on the ground, and they spat on me, and they said, don't you ever think you can ever be one of us? We despise you. I never tried that again. So to be absolutely sure that I would never bump into any of them when I went for water, I started going at 12 noon, at the hottest time of the day. Everybody was snoozing at 12 noon, except me. On this particular day, I was walking off to Jacob's Well. It's about a kilometer outside of town. Quite a famous landmark, sunk by our ancestor, Jacob. And I was about halfway there with this big clay jar on my shoulder. And a group of Jewish men, young men, came down the road past me. And they were talking quite loudly about somebody that they called the teacher. They were saying, oh, the teacher is so tired. and He's hungry. And then they were saying, oh, I hope we can find somebody who's prepared to sell us some food at this time of day because they're probably all sleuthing. You know, they didn't even notice me. I was a Samaritan that despised people. The Jews regarded us as half-cost religious half-costs. And I was a woman and a Jewish man would not even talk to a woman in public. So they just didn't even see me there. I was invisible to them. But it was okay. I was used to that. And I walked on up. And as I approached the well, I saw a man sitting on the stone surround of the well. And I thought, oh, that must be the teacher. So I kind of walked around to the other side of the well so I didn't have to interact with him at all or even make eye contact. And as I was getting my clay jar out, I put it down on the ground and I was about to hook it up with the ropes to lower it down and to fill it with water. He said to me, won't you give me something to drink? What? I was, in, I was offended. I mean, he was a teacher, a rabbi, and he was Jewish. He shouldn't even be speaking to a woman. And I was a Samaritan. That means... I would be ritually unclean. If he were to drink from my jar, that would make him unclean. How could he do that? So, with a very sharp tongue I had in those days, I turned to him and I said, you, a Jewish teacher, a rabbi, you, a Jewish man, are asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? He didn't seem to get angry when I said that. He just looked at me and he said, Oh, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who was asking you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would give you living water. I thought, I've got a religious kook on my hands here. What's all this living water schmorter stuff? I I haven't got time for this nonsense. So in the most sarcastic tone that I could summons, I said to him, you don't even have a jaw and you have no means of drawing water. And this is Jacob's well. This was drilled by our ancestor Jacob and it's deep. It's very deep. How are you going to give me water? Huh? Huh? How are you going to give me water? Oh, so you, maybe you think you're greater than Jacob, right? So you're going to be like Moses. You're going to go and smack a rock or something and the water's going to come out of it. And again, he didn't seem to take offense. He just looked at me and smiled quietly. And he said, I'm not talking about this kind of water. You drink from this water, you'll be thirsty again. But the water that I will give you, when you drink that, you will never thirst again. 
In fact, it will come up within you as an internal spring of water welling up for eternal life. <sighs> I thought, I, I can't handle this kind of conversation. I mean, where is this going, for goodness sakes? So I said, okay already, give me this water. And then at least I won't have to come here and draw it myself every day. And he paused for a while. And he looked at me and he said, okay. But first go and call your husband and bring him back with you. <gasps> that terrible word, husband. You know, it evoked everything in me which epitomized my shame, my degradation, my disappointment, my hurt, my pain. All the wind was knocked out of my cells at that moment. All the aggression I had, all the sarcasm just was gone. It just melted. And I looked down at my feet and I said, I don't have a husband. He looked at me and said, you've spoken truly. For you have had five husbands, haven't you? And the man whom you are now with is not your husband. And as he said those words, he looked deeply into my eyes. And something remarkable happened to me. Uh, it's hard for me to put this into words, but bear with me. It was as if my whole life started to flash like a series of holographic images on, on the retina of my eyes. I just saw all these images, particularly of the last few decades, of all the, all, the, all the mistakes I'd made and all the hurt I'd caused and all the pain and all, all the dissatisfaction with life and with myself. I saw it all. And I became aware that he could see it too. No, it was more than that. He was causing me to see it. He was showing me my life. I would have expected him to judge me, you know, a Jewish rabbi, me, a drunken slut Samaritan woman. But he didn't. All I felt from him was a deep sense of acceptance and a profound compassion. It left me so shaken. I had never experienced something like this before. It was so real. It was so of the spirit. I didn't know how to handle it, so I did what I had learned to do so well, I, I deflected. Now I knew that often when Jewish teachers came down past this part of the world, the men from our town often used to engage them, often at this well, and try and get them into this religious debate. You see, we believed that we should worship God on Mount Gerizim. We were right on the slopes of Mount Gerizim, right there at Sukha. And, and so they would enter into this debate with Jews about where is the right place to worship. So I said, sir, I can see you're a prophet. My ancestors worshipped God on Mount Gerizim, but you Jews say that we should only worship in Jerusalem. I thought, if I can just get him going on this, then, then maybe I can escape from this, this strange thing that's happening to me. But he didn't buy it. In fact, what he did is he just spoke with authority and definitively settled the argument that had been raging for centuries. He just dealt with it in one shot. He said, believe me, woman, the time is coming when people will neither worship on Mount Gerizim or in the temple in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship whom you do not know. Us Jews, we worship who we do know for salvation is from the Jews. But I tell you, the time is coming and actually has already come 
when people will worship in spirit and in truth. Not with little altars halfway up Mount Gerizim or a gilded temple and a sacrificial system in Jerusalem. No, they will worship God in spirit and in truth. No ringing bells, no smells, no sacrifices, no special words, but in truth and from spirit to spirit, heart to heart. You see, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. For those are the kind of worshiper, worshippers that my father seeks. I'd never heard anybody speak like that before. And with absolute authority, he was just settling the matter. I had heard from early childhood that one day the Messiah would come. And that he would make all things clear. And we would worship him. And I was starting to think that maybe this was him. So I tentatively said to him, Sir, I know that Messiah will come. And, and when he comes, he, he will explain everything to us like you've been doing. And he stood up from the well. And he stood before me and his face became radiant. And he looked at me and he said, He who speaks to you is he. Something happened within me. It was like that spring of living water had spoken about. It started welling up from within. It welled up with faith. Somehow I knew I could believe in what he said, but more than that, I had faith to believe in him himself. That he truly was the Jewish Messiah. That he was the Greek Christ. That he was the Savior of the world. And therefore, he was my Savior too. And the spiritual spring that welled up within me welled up into hope for the first time in decades. I had hope for tomorrow and for all the years that would come after that. Just then, his disciples rejoined him. And I could see that they were concerned that he had been talking with a woman, but they didn't dare argue the toss of them. You know what? I couldn't have cared less how they felt. I had met the Messiah. He had given me the living water which he had spoken about. I was new. I would never be the same again. I just left my jaw lying in the sand, empty. And I ran. I ran the full kilometer back to Sukha. And when I got there, the people were snoozing or sitting under trees talking to each other. I just went and banged on doors and I went and shook people and I said, Come, come and see the one who told me everything about my life. Come. I'm convinced he's the Messiah. Come. Maybe they thought I was drunk. But they actually listened. There was something about me that had changed. There was something about what I was saying, the testimony I was giving, which was riveting them. They came and they joined. Most of the village came with me. And we came on back. And we stopped a respectable distance away from him. The disciples were tr still trying to persuade him to eat. They were saying, teacher, teacher, you're weak. You, you're tired. You, you, you must be hungry. Come, eat. And his eyes scanned us Samaritans. And then his eye fell on me. And he said, I have food that you know nothing about. And then he winked at me. <laughs> it was just a little wink. He winked at me. 
I mean, how cool is that? It was as if we were, were sharing a secret. Well, we were sharing a secret. He had told me who he was. And I was the only one there, including his disciples, who knew that. Yes, we were sharing a secret. One of his disciples picked up on this little interchange and said, has somebody brought him food that we know nothing about? And again, he just grinned. And he turned to them and he said, no, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. And then he said, you fellows of God are saying, have you not, four more months and then the harvest? In other words, hey, the harvest will be, it'll be ready in four months' time. We can just relax now, take it easy, and we'll get to harvest when we have to. No, I tell you, look around you. The fields are white for harvest already. But when he did this with his hand, he wasn't waving out over the fields. He was waving his hand out over us, the Samaritans from Sukha. Then he said, the time of harvest is here. Can you not see? It is time to reap a harvest, not of wheat, or of barley, but of eternal life. And again, he gestured to us. He said, this is the time when the harvesters and the sowers can work together with great joy and bring in this wonderful harvest. You have the privilege of reaping where you have not sown. For others have sown here. My prophets have gone out before and have spoken my word. Even today, I have sent forth my word into this harvest field. I've sown the seeds. Now come, have the joy of harvesting. A lot of those folk who came with me, I think they were half-believing already. Some of them had believed because I told them, and now they'd seen him, and they were, you could see they were thinking, wow, this is certainly somebody more than we expected. But our elder stepped forward, the village elder, and he said, Rabbi, would you consider honoring us by coming and staying with us for a few days and teaching us the way of your father? The works of the Father. What an outrageous request. I mean, come on. He was the Jewish rabbi. We were the despised Samaritans. He's going to come and stay in our village and eat our food and sleep on our beds. Forget it. He said, okay. His disciples went white. But they had known better. They knew to follow him. And so we all went back into the village. He stayed with us for two days. And during that time, he taught us. And he loved us. And he showed us the way of salvation. It was a wonderful time. And you know what? I became a mini-celebrity. Me. You see, I was the go-to gal. Was I not the one who had introduced him? Was I not the one who had said, come and see, I found the Messiah? You know, people would come up to me and say, please, why don't you just go and ask him this question? And I'd say, leave it to me. <laughs> and, and others would, would come to me and they would say, do you think he means this and that? And I would just look very wise and say, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was great being a celebrity. I, who was nobody, was now somebody. You know, even some of those women who had beat me after death, they came to me and they said, thank you. We sort of believed on what you had said, but now we have seen and heard for ourselves and we have come to believe 
that he truly is the saviour of the world. But then the time came for him to go. And he and his disciples went out of the village and we all accompanied him, the whole lot of us, right to the edge of the village. And he started walking away and he was maybe 10 or 15, maybe 20 meters away when a realization dawned upon me. I had not had a drink of wine or anything strong since I met him. And I hadn't even wanted to. The craving was gone. The desire was gone. That spring of living water that had welled up inside me and washed me clean. And I was new. I was a new creature, a new person. I was so filled with joy. I just wanted to run after him and join his little group. But I knew that I couldn't do that and shouldn't do that. At that moment, he stopped, turned side on, and he just raised his hand in farewell. And I reached out my hand too. And in a small voice, I said, until we meet again, my Lord. <laughs>